is uh, Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verses 6 and 7. This was prophesied centuries before the birth of Jesus. The prophet Isaiah, the Lord spoke through him and said, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I love this, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace... There will be no end. Isn't that good news? On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And how's all this going to be accomplished? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God is true to his word. Our God is a God who keeps his promises. So fathers, we come to you this morning and as we open up your word, we thank you for the promise of Emmanuel. We thank you for the promise of God with us. We thank you that the Word, Jesus, became flesh. He dwelt among us so that we could see his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We thank you for the promise of God with us. We thank you that you are with us in seasons of weeping and seasons of rejoicing, in the aching and in the longing. In the light and the darkness, you are with us. Everywhere we are, there you are, because you have promised you will never leave us or forsake us. Thank you for being with us. So Lord, as we open up your word together this morning, as we see once again the promise of God with us and what that means for us, that we can know and experience the fullness of joy through Jesus Christ, Lord, would you reignite our joy? For some today, Lord, will you help them to discover joy that can be found in you? Center our hearts in you. Center our hearts in your word. Holy Spirit, will you take authority in our hearts and our minds? Sanctify us in truth because your word is truth. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. And as you find your seats this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bible. Luke chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 39 through 56 together this morning. If you're our guest, we started a new message series last week called Glory in the Highest. This is a short Advent uh, series that we're working through in Luke chapters 1 and 2. Really appreciate Josiah Tobin bringing the word to us last week. Man, that, that brother is a teacher in every sense of the word. Amen. Uh, did just a, a wonderful job last week walking us through uh, the beginning there of Luke chapter 1. We're going to pick up where he left off last week, beginning in verse 39. Um, I'll just come right out of the gate and, and say it this morning. But my entire life... I have been a die-hard fan of the Atlanta Braves, so it's been a really good month for me. Uh, the Braves won the World Series, if you're not a baseball person, a few weeks ago, and first time it had happened in 26 years, and happened, you know, once during the 90s, and, and Braves fans, or if you're a baseball fan, you know kind of what we have had to suffer through. During the 90s, the Braves were in the World Series several times, but only won it once, and it's been a really long time since then, and so when they made the World Series this year, you better believe I'm going to be staying up late every single night and watching these games, and The dynamic in our home is that, you know, Emily is kind of a Braves fan because I'm a Braves fan, right? Like, she doesn't really care, but she knows that it impacts my mood and things like that. So she she remains at least loosely tethered to what they're doing. 
but she's not going to stay up late and watch the games. It's more, hey, tell me how it went, you know, when we wake up the next morning. Gideon, our oldest, loves baseball, but he's, hey, actually, he's nine today. Today's his birthday, but he's not able to stay up, you know, school nights till like 1130 midnight on some of these games. So he would usually watch the first couple of innings, and then I'd have to send him on to bed and, and then give him the update the next morning. Well, uh, get to game six, and finally the moment that we'd been waiting for as Braves fans for 26 years, um, it became abundantly clear this is actually going to happen. Now, up until this point, I had not allowed myself to experience the joy of this because as a Braves fan, I know they are fully capable of choking and blowing this thing completely. Like, we have suffered through that, but when I got to the place where I was fully confident, no, they're going to win this thing. Uh, I went upstairs, I woke up Gideon, I brought him downstairs, like, hey buddy, the Braves are about to win the World Series. And we watched the final out together and we celebrated that moment together. Throughout the series, you know, I had different texting groups going on. And I'm, I'm on a text thread with Grayson and Cole because they're Braves fans and other friends and family members. Because when we don't have the opportunity to express our joy, we don't have the opportunity to complete our joy. Joy remains incomplete until the joy is expressed. Like when you are given a gift, your fullness of your joy isn't complete simply by receiving the gift. Unless you're a terrible person, you want to thank the giver, right? You, you want to be able to say, thank you for this gift that you've given to me. Whenever you have to hold that in and keep it to yourself, you're, a, you're unable to complete your joy. Last week, we saw that Mary had received this very unexpected piece of news. Though she was a virgin, she was miraculously with child. And the Immaculate Conception, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Mary is going to carry the Messiah. She's going to carry Jesus, the Savior of the universe. And she's at first a little bit startled by this news and startled by the presence of the angel, but the angel promises her that he's going to give her another sign, a covenant sign that her relative Elizabeth, who everyone thought was unable to have children herself, was also going to be with child. And so gives her a promise to confirm the promise that she had been given. And today what we're going to see as we pick up in verse 39 is that as Mary receives this joy, as she receives this good news, she doesn't keep it to herself. What we'll see when we open up Luke chapter 1 this morning is that worship is the overflow of faith in the promises of God. Worship is the overflow of faith in the promises of God. Whenever you become fully confident in who God is and what he has said and what he has done and what he has promised to do, the natural response, the spontaneous response, the overflow of that confidence in that faith is the worship and the praise of his name. Our joy is incomplete until our joy is expressed. And this morning we're going to see together how it is that Mary experiences and expresses her joy. So Luke chapter 1, uh, we're going to read together here a couple short verses because um, there's an important detail that we don't want to overlook from verses 39 and 40. It says, In those days, Mary arose and went with haste. Everyone say haste. She went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Again, this is very subtle, but I don't want us to miss this this morning. Genuine faith is evidenced by a willingness to take immediate action. Genuine faith is evidenced by a willingness to take immediate action. Verse 39 says that Mary arose and went with haste. She went to the hill country. Now understand that this is not a short drive like it is kind of from my house on Ladies Island into Port Royal for worship this morning. 
This was a pretty significant journey that Mary was going to have to make. The distance uh, from where she was in Nazareth to Judah, this covered a range of about 80 to 100 miles, and it's something that would have taken her three to four days. Now, we'll remember from last week, Mary is a young, uh, probably teenage girl, somewhere between the age of 12 and 14, who is unexpectedly pregnant. And, and we see her now, the moment that she has received this promise, the moment that she's heard the words of the angel, she begins to take immediate action. It's amazing as you, you read this passage, we're not given any sort of indication that anyone made this journey with her. And we don't really know exactly, we could speculate, but it at least makes us wonder, did, did her parents reject her for this? Were they in any way supportive of this? Did she tell them? Did she leave without their knowledge? Did she travel alone? Well, whatever the case is, what we know is that what Mary needed most in that moment was someone who was going to understand what she was going through, and that person was Elizabeth. Gabriel had made her this promise. She said, hey, your, your relative Elizabeth, she's old, she's advanced in years, they'd never been able to conceive children. She too, we saw last week, was going to be with child. Her husband, Zachariah, they promised that they're going to have a son. They're to name him John. He was going to be the forerunner who prepared the way for Jesus Christ. The angel had promised Mary, nothing will be impossible with God. And so she wastes absolutely no time. She gets up and she moves. She takes God at his word. She shows up unannounced at the doorstep of Elizabeth and Zechariah. Faith in the promises of God results in action. Faith in the promises of God results in action. When we're confident in who God is and what he has said he's going to do, we prove our confidence by taking immediate steps. Um, this past weekend for, uh, for Gideon's birthday, we had several of his friends um, over to our house and said, man, our, our house just got raided by a bunch of barbarians on Friday nights. And, and so um, we asked him, like, hey, buddy, you know, what do you want to eat for your birthday? He says pizza. And, and that's pretty common for our family. Friday night is pizza night at our house. And so um, I had left the house to go get pizza and for his buddies. And so I'm coming back into the house. And as soon as I open the door, I hear Gideon. Yeah, they're all upstairs. Uh, just chaos. Sounds like our roof is going to collapse. And, and as soon as the door opens, though, you hear him yell out, pizza, makes the announcement. And, and just like that, man, a stampede of boys came flying down the stairs. Now, again, I, I did not come through the door and say, hey, the pizza's here. I had not made that announcement, but there's a history that's there. Gideon can look back on, on previous Fridays across nine years of his life and know, hey, this is what my dad does on Friday nights. He, he had given his request to his father, a good request, and he had confidence that I was going to fulfill that request. But Gideon didn't want to come downstairs and eat. By, Gideon didn't want to come downstairs and eat by himself. He shared it with his friends. This, this was good news, and he expressed the goodness and, and the confidence in his joy by sharing that news with his friends. This is what true faith does. When we're confident in the promises of God, when we believe that God has said he's going to do what he said he's going to do, when we believe this, it results in immediate action. Let's read verses 41 through 45 together. It says, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. So she's about six months pregnant with John at this point. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. We see second from this passage this morning that the fullness of joy is found in the presence of Jesus Christ. You ask the question this morning, where does true joy come from? Where does full joy come from? It comes from from the presence of Christ. 
Mary arrives completely unannounced at the home of Elizabeth and Zechariah, and as soon as she darkens the doorway, we're told that John leapt in her womb. And this is a really interesting detail from Luke chapter 1. Elizabeth is the first person we're told in the New Testament that's filled with the Holy Spirit. And what incites this fullness? What incites the leaping within her womb? It's the presence of Jesus. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. She's filled with the Holy Spirit, and it results in the overflow of praise. Now remember, earlier in John 1, it was prophesied that John would be the forerunner who prepared the way for Jesus Christ. We're told that John is the one fulfilling the words of the prophets, one who would be the voice crying out in the wilderness. And John's ministry and his message was really simple. From the wilderness, he preached the gospel of repentance, the same message we're called to preach. His message was simple, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're told that John, as he grew older, is a little bit of an interesting guy. You know, he wore a garment of camel's hair. He ate locusts and wild honey. He's preaching this message of repentance. People were coming out to him in droves. But it's really important for you and I to notice an important detail from this passage this morning. John the Baptist's ministry did not start in the wilderness. John's ministry started in the womb. Six-month-old child that Elizabeth is carrying. And here's Mary, just a few days pregnant. It's the presence of Jesus that incites fullness of joy. You know, this particular passage could not have come uh, at a more perfect time. You know, we, we plan message series usually months in advance, and, um, and, and we, we typically, you know, about 60% of our time, if you know you're part of our church family, we'll preach through a book of the Bible. We're always preaching through a text in the Bible, even if we're looking at, a, at an isolated passage of Scripture. But the, the timing couldn't be more perfect. This past week, if you've been paying attention, the Supreme Court heard arguments uh, in the case of Dobbs versus Jackson, which deals with the Mississippi uh, abortion law that would outlaw abortions every 15 weeks. And you know, to be clear for us as a church, the morality of this is not confusing. Um, we, as, as a Christian church, we embrace the orthodox position of the church for all of church history until recently, which is that all of life, both from womb to tomb, is created in the image of God. We uphold and affirm the imago Dei, the image of God in mankind, and that is pre-born and, and born life. Like that, That's not something that's reserved to one or to the other. We believe not just in the sanctity of human life, we believe in the dignity of human life. And we see both of those on display in this passage here this morning. All of mankind from womb to tomb has been made in the image of God and is worthy of honor and dignity and protection. And, and this is, you know, I think important for us to remember because more than believing biologically that life begins at the moment of conception, as followers of Jesus, we believe a deeper truth. That your life didn't just begin at the moment of conception. We believe in a God who is sovereign and who has been planning your life from eternity past. These were his words through the prophet Jeremiah. Before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you. He knew you and he loved you. The psalmist tells us it is the Lord himself who is fearfully and wonderfully making us, who is intricately knitting together the fabric of our bodies and our lives. And so as followers of Jesus, the morality of this really should not be confusing. You know, but sadly... Uh, this remains one of those subjects for more conservative and more progressive Christians alike. We tend to let our opinions on these things be formed by the world more than being formed by the Word. You know, so we've got more uh, self-proclaimed uh, progressive Christians who, man, they'll scream at the top of their lungs about social justice in the culture, amen, but will remain totally silent on the subject of abortion. I mean, church, let's just call that what it is. You are pandering to what's popular in the culture. The moment we will speak prophetically to the culture up to the point that it makes us and everybody else uncomfortable, we have ceased to be prophetic. 
Like to be prophetic as a church means that we call balls and strikes. Like we don't cater to anybody. We don't pander to anybody. We stand and we uphold and we affirm the word of God. But then on the opposite end of the extreme, oftentimes you have very conservative Christians who aren't truly pro-life but are more politically pro-life. Like we'll vote pro-life because that's politically expedient, but then we'll do very, very little to actually care for the mother or the child. And what we see from this passage this morning is, church, we cannot be either or. We have to be both and. We absolutely see the sanctity of human life, both in Mary's womb and in Elizabeth's womb, but we also see the dignity of life. But we as followers of Jesus, we don't just want to see the protection of the unborn. We want to see the flourishing of them once they're born. And and what Mary has here is a system of support that, that enables that flourishing. But what does she have? She's got a godly mentoring couple in Zechariah and Elizabeth who've said, hey, come into our home. We learned the last verse of this chapter, for three months she is in their home. Now, just a little bit of homework, going back to where we were last week. What was Zachariah's job? What was his position? He's a priest. And this is in a, a, a deeply religious culture where we're getting pregnant outside of wedlock. Man, Mary could have been stoned for this. Now, now listen, y'all, this is a little bit of conjecture on my part, but I think we can safely assume this just based on what we know about people because people have not changed that much in 2,000 years. You think Zechariah as a priest and Elizabeth, his wife, you think they didn't get some looks for letting Mary come into their home? But they do. That They bring her in and they get to mentor her and disciple her and care for her and nurture her in the midst of these extremely vulnerable months. I mean, just this incredibly fragile situation. Here's, here's a girl that, man, she does not have a, a story that's believable to almost anyone. And they invite her into their home more than the support of Zechariah and Elizabeth. There's an earthly adoptive father named Joseph who says, I'm going to raise that boy. Who believes in the promise of God. Who, who, despite the stigma that he absolutely would have experienced, despite the gossip and the slander that would have surrounded them together as a family, he decides he's going to stick it out. More than that, we, we see the sovereign hand of God over this entire situation. The confidence of knowing that the Lord was not going to leave her alone. He was not going to allow her to remain unseen. This is why I say as a church, we have to be both and. Like, it's, it's not enough for us to protect the life of unborn children in the womb. We have to be people who also come alongside mothers, come alongside children to ensure they're flourishing and the best chance to know Jesus Christ. It amazed me as I was looking around in our first service this morning. I see a couple families in here this morning, too. There were no less than six families in our church in our first worship gathering this morning who have been on the front lines of both adoption and foster care. Man, I, I love that. Like, that, that, that has been such a, a pervasive theme with the very beginning. As a congregation across the last five years, we have given tens of thousands of dollars to local ministries like Radiance Women's Center, uh, Lifeline Adoption Services, incredible ministry, the work of Young Lives, which is a ministry to teen moms. We have mentor uh, moms that are all over this congregation, and we've just seen our congregation at the forefront of this week in and week out because we want to be truly pro-life, not just politically pro-life. From womb to tomb, we want to honor and uphold the dignity and the sanctity of all of human life. And we see both of those this morning on display in this passage. Just watch this. Here's John, six months old. So we know now, you know, he's somewhere in the range of nine to ten inches long. He weighs somewhere between one and two pounds. Unborn child, six months in the mother's womb. He is leaping and experiencing the emotion of joy. And where does that joy come from? It comes from the presence of Christ in a woman who has only been pregnant for three or four days. 
don't miss what we see in Scripture. Elizabeth and Mary fully affirm the personhood of Christ. Fully affirm the personhood of Christ, and it's in his presence, by the presence of his person, that they experience the fullness of joy. Let's read together the the rest of the passage here from verses 46 through 56. So what's all this been leading up to? Again, it's kind of been a slow build for the last couple of weeks. The angel come, and he visits Mary, and he lets her know that she's going to be fulfilling this prophecy that the people have been waiting on for centuries. She was the virgin who would conceive and who would bear a son. That sign is now being confirmed through uh, what the Lord has done in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth. In just a little bit of time, the Lord has been unfolding all this to Mary. He's like, okay, I can, I can believe this piece. Now I'm going to go see Elizabeth. Okay, now I believe it a little bit more. And it's just been building and building and building. And what does it all lead to? It leads to the overflow of worship and praise. Her confidence in the promises of God, it it leads to a place of absolutely uncontainable praise. And she sings here a song that we know uh, through the centuries as the Magnificat. This is uh, verses 46 through 56. Let's read this. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Verse 56 says, Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. We see third this morning that total confidence in the promises of God produces a response of uncontainable praise. She has become fully confident in the fact that the Lord is going to honor this promise. And it leads her to a place that she can no longer contain her praise. It leads to worship because joy is incomplete until the joy is expressed. Mary has finally hit her limits, right? Like she's finally to the place of can't hold it in any longer. It's the bottom of the ninth. There's two outs and the Braves are going to win it all. Mary was a Braves fan. I'm absolutely confident in this. Like it's, it's reached that point. Like I can't hold it in any longer. I've, I've got to go share this with somebody. I've got to tell somebody. I've got to give some praise about what it is that the Lord has done for me. She can no longer contain her praise. Uh, John Piper has a really great little Advent book called Good News of Great Joy that I'd encourage you to check out. And uh, this is an excerpt from that devotional. He says here of Mary and Elizabeth, it says, Mary sees clearly a most remarkable thing about God. He is about to change the course of all of human history. The most important three decades in all time are about to begin. I love this. And where is God? Occupying himself with two obscure, humble women. One old and barren, that's Elizabeth, and one young and virginal, that's Mary. And Mary is so moved by this vision of God that she breaks out in song. You know, we very often speak of Mary's age, you know, again, it's possible she's only in the range of maybe 12 to 14 years old, and it's not just possible, but actually most probable that uh, because of the lack of educational opportunities that were afforded to women during this time and culture, uh, Mary was most likely illiterate. But just because she was illiterate and didn't have the ability to read doesn't mean we should assume that Mary was ignorant. 
What we see about the song that is sung by Mary is is that this is a young girl whose entire life had been built on the word of God. This was an oral tradition type of culture. Things were communicated verbally. And and then Mary was like a lot of teens today. She always had the earbuds in. Like always listening though to the word of God. Always listening to the songs of God's people. Always listening to the prayers of God's people. And all of that completely saturates everything that she says in this song. You know, some people have looked at this song and, and, and they think back and again, we just, we kind of look at the past and we just assume that everybody was, you know, they're uneducated and they were kind of ignorant and, and they didn't understand things about the world that we understand now. And, and some critical scholars have actually gone as far as to say, this song is too sophisticated for Mary to have written herself. And they just assume that, you know, because Luke was a doctor and because he was a, a lawyer, because he was very well educated, he's probably the one who wrote it and then inserted it into his gospel account. But that was not reflective of the culture at this time. These people knew the word of God. They knew the word of God. They knew the promises. They knew the prophecies. They knew the Psalms. They knew the songs. They knew the prayers. And that's evident in the song of Mary. I just want to walk through this line by line because I want us to see how it is that Mary's prayer and how her song has been shaped by her knowledge and understanding of the word of God. Psalm 40, or verse 46, she begins this by saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. This is reflective of Psalm 34. Magnify the Lord with me. Verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Psalm 35, my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exalting in his salvation. Verses 48 and 49, he has looked on his servant. This is a reflection of Hannah's hymn from 1 Samuel chapter 2. When Hannah discovered that she was pregnant with Samuel, she sang this song, and Mary was familiar with the story. Verse 49, she knows that Messiah is El Gabor. He is the mighty God. That's Isaiah 9. Verse 49, she knows that his name is holy. That's Psalm 103.1. Verse 50, she knows that he is merciful and gracious. That's Psalm 103, verse 8. Verse 51, she knows that the arm of the Lord is strong. That's Psalm 89 and 118. Verses 52 and 53, she, or he humbles the exalted and exalts the humble. That's Psalm 147, verse 6. Verses 54 and 55, the promise of Abraham to Israel that salvation would come. Listen, church, I think we can settle once for all the debate of Mary, did you know? Church, she knew. She knew. I mean, we're all down here, Mary, did you know? And she's like, yes, I knew. The angel told me and I know the word, yes. She knew. It's because her life had been built on the word of God. Mary absolutely knew. I think the problem is sometimes we don't know because we don't know this word. Man, if we're just being completely honest this morning, this teenage girl would have schooled most of us in Bible drill. Her life had been built upon the promises of the word. She knew that God had a track record of faithfulness. She knew the Old Testament. She knew promises that had been made, and she knew promises that had been kept. She knew that her life and her story aligned with what had been prophesied. All of it became more and more plausible. And then just to reaffirm and reassure her faith, the Lord gives her another sign, which is Elizabeth. She's fully confident in the promises of God, fully versed in the word of God. Mary knew the prophecy of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, we see that woman is deceived by a fallen angel's lies. But then in Luke chapter 1, we see that woman is greeted with a holy angel's truth. Genesis chapter 3, we see that childbearing would be the burden as a result of sin. Luke chapter 1, we see that this child would be the blessing who would redeem us from sin. She knew that the Genesis 3 prophecy through her was being fulfilled. The offspring of woman, the seed of woman, the day had come. He was rising up to crush the head of the snake. She knew. 
She absolutely knew. One of my favorite books as a kid was uh, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. If you read the story, you know that Santa's reappearance and arrival meant that the curse of winter was being broken. It meant that the witch's magic was losing its efficacy. It meant that the great king, the great lion, Aslan, was once again on the move. And in the same way, this sign of the virgin conceiving, it meant that the curse of sin was being broken. It meant that the power of the enemy was losing its strength, and it meant that the lion of the tribe of Judah was moving. The time had come, and Mary knew. And because she knew, she couldn't contain her praise. So I really want to give us one challenge in in light of all this this morning as we we begin to close out this passage together this morning. And the challenge for us is this, with with a, a teenage girl being our example this morning, it's to build our lives upon the promises of God. Build your life on the promises of God's word. Mary might have been illiterate, but she was not ignorant. She knew the word of God. And when this very unexpected moment arises in her life, something that has completely changed the trajectory of her plans and of her life, it did not destroy her because she was ready. She had built her life upon the promises of God. Jesus teaches uh, this very, very simple parable that many of us sang as a song as kids growing up. There were two guys that were building houses. There was a wise man, and where's the wise man build his house? It was on the rock, right? Where's the foolish man build his house? On the sand. And then what happens? Rains come down, and what do the floods do? Let's do the hand signals, right? They go up. Yes, yeah, some of us are in this. We've got Sunday school graduates in the room. The rains went down, the floods went up. And what happens? What happens to the house on the rock? Stood still. Fun part of the song, what happened to the house on sand? Splat. Very simple. Jesus says, build your life on my word. That's like building your house on a rock. You don't build my life on your word. That's like building a house on sand. He doesn't say if the rains come, when the rains come. If you've not built your house, if you've not built your home, if you've not built your life upon the rock, you're going to come crashing down. Turn with me in your Bible here for just a moment. Uh, John chapter 15. Uh, I was on sabbatical this summer. We had a, a few brothers in our church who um, taught through this and, and looked at what does rest in Jesus Christ look like. We've been singing that song, Abide. I don't know about you. It's become one of my favorite songs that we sing on a weekly basis. And I want us to look at these words of Jesus from John chapter 15. We need to consider what it means to abide in his word. And we also need to see that what Jesus promises to us as his followers, it's contingent on whether or not we will abide in his word. This is John 15, verses 4 through 11. Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do, what's that say? Nothing. Now pay attention here, key word in verse 6. If. Everybody say if. If. So this is conditional. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If, everybody say if, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you 
and that your joy may be full. Where does the fullness of joy come from? It comes from the presence of Jesus Christ. How do we abide and remain in Jesus Christ? By remaining in his word. It's all contingent. Listen, we need to understand this this morning. We have absolutely no claim on God's comfort, on his promises, no claim on the strength that is required to carry out what he's called us to do. We have absolutely no claim on any of this if we are not abiding in his word. All that we experience, the fullness of joy in him, the strength and the power by the Holy Spirit required to carry out what he's called us to do, all of this is contingent on whether or not we're abiding in his word. And this, this word abide, understand it, it means a lot more than just, man, like spend a few minutes in. That this, this word abide, it means to remain, it means to dwell, it means to immerse, it means to saturate, build your home here, abide here, live here. You know, in, in just a couple of weeks, we'll, we'll recommend a Bible reading plan to you for 2022. And, and I was preparing for this the last couple of weeks, and you know, the Lord kind of pricked my heart about something because I, I realized, you know, our messaging in this in years past maybe have actually been giving the wrong type of signal. You know, what, you'll, you'll typically hear me or someone else say something like, hey, listen, it, it, it's, I, let me backtrack a little bit. Sometimes I think we talk about this like we're trying to t- sell a timeshare. It's like, hey, for only 15 minutes a day, you can read through the Bible in a whole year. Now, is that true? It's true. I mean, if you'll just commit to that, like two, three chapters a day, you will, by the end of a year, have, have read through all 1,189 chapters of Scripture. It's true. But I fear what happens sometimes when we communicate this way is that it gives the perception that 15 minutes a day is all you need. Now, Jesus says, Abide. Abide here, dwell here, live here, build your home here. Saturate yourself in this, immerse yourself in this, remain in this. Because everything he promises is contingent on whether or not we're abiding in him. Listen, the Lord's going to be faithful. He has promised to provide all that we need. And yet in our sanctification, we work in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. He will give us all that we need and we are still responsible to be obedient to the path ahead. So how do we build our life upon the promises of the word? I'm going to give us five things. These are going to seem very, very obvious to most of, most of us. And, and, and truth be told, they really are. For most of us, it's not going to be anything new that we've, we've heard, but I think we need to be reminded of this in light of Mary's example this morning. So I'm going to do the first two together, the second two together, and then the last one on its own. So, so the way that we're going to build our lives on the promises of God is first by hearing the word and reading the word. We've got to hear the word consistently, and we've got to read the word consistently. Again, Mary, probably illiterate, you know, could, could not log on to Amazon and, and order, a, you know, an ESV study Bible and have it there in two days. Oral tradition, the way that the word of God was, was communicated in this culture was just, was by word of mouth, by being passed on from one generation to the next. But it's still abundantly clear that she had hidden God's word in her heart. She had built her life around this. She had put herself in position to be able to hear the word of God. And, and in light of that, again, you and I do have a privilege that Mary doesn't have today, which is we can read the Word of God. We've, we've never had easier access to this. We've never had more access to this. You and I have more access to the Word of God than any other generation of Christians that have ever lived. And listen, it's embarrassing how much we have. And yet it seems like for, for most of us that this just continues to get pushed out to the margins. We've forgotten what we have. Mary knew what she had. She built her life upon it. She saturated herself in it. She lived. She was just dwelling in the word of God. How are you going to put yourself in position to consistently hear the word of God? Listen, that, that's, that's not just in worship gatherings on Sunday mornings. 
How can you do this throughout the course of the week? Just a quick show of hands. How many of you have heard about the Dwell Bible app? Has anybody else tuned in? Man, this has become one of my favorite Bible apps. You know, I've, I've kind of got this low-key southern drawl. I talk really fast. It doesn't sound cool when I read the Bible, but I've got this British guy set to ambient music, and he reads the Bible to me while I'm driving, and it's awesome. Put yourself in position to hear the Word of God. Put yourself in position to hear the Word of God, not just as we gather. Surround yourself with the Word of God. Man, sir, put it in your home. Hang it in your home. Like, let it surround you so that you have these reminders as you go throughout your life, as you go throughout your day. And we could really carry that out to say, man, commit to memorizing the Word of God. Hide it in your heart so that when the moment arrives, when the plan for your life gets thrown off course, you've built yourself on a solid foundation. We'll do the second two together as well. We want to be people who pray the Word, and we want to be people who sing the Word. I'm going to say something that's going to blow some of our minds, but it absolutely shouldn't because this is how Scripture sees it. We need to understand that praying the word and singing the word are actually one and the same. Like, what do you think the book of Psalms are? These are prayers of God's people. These are poems. These are prose that are oftentimes set to music, but, but most consistently they were expressed as praise. Build your life on this, on, on praying the word and singing the word. Listen, do you struggle with prayer? Learn to pray the word of God. You know, like many of you, I, I grew up in a tradition where it was no, not at all like a, a high church liturgical. We were kind of backcountry, backwoods, Baptist. Nobody writes their prayers in, in that environment. We freestyle everything, right? It's like, that's real spirit-led prayer. It's like, it's the guy who can just kind of stand up in the congregation and, and just pray the fire and the glory down, right? Like, we think that's the only way to pray. But, but what is Mary doing here? I mean, she's just reciting the word of God. All she's doing is she's taking the word of God and she's turning it into song. She's turning it into a prayer. Like you're not cheating by using your Bible to pray. God has actually intended and ordained that you use his word to pray. This is why some of us pray such terrible prayers because we're not praying the truth of God's word. We're praying our feelings and our emotions. And it's not that God can't use that and, and take the jumbled mess of a prayer and transform it into something awesome, but he has given us his word so that we will not be without a word to pray. Now, these words are oftentimes attributed to Augustine. It's, it's attributed to many people, but Augustine usually gets the credit, and I love this. It's been said that Augustine said that he who sings prays twice. Don't see these as, as different things, but let's see them as one in the same. Let's fill our prayers and saturate our prayers with the Word of God. Let's sing the Word of God. You know, we're, we're in this Advent season where uh, we did this morning, we did last week, we will the next couple of weeks, and we'll sing a lot of these more traditional hymns. And man, it's, it's really easy to kind of cynically look at all that and just say, man, why, why are we doing this? Like how, how much do these songs really have application to, to today? It's, it's easy to kind of write some of that off and, and push it away. Let me, let me lay something out for us this morning. Didn't have time for this in the first service. We got time now. Part of the reasons why the hymns continue to prevail through the centuries is because they tend to be written based on the objective truth of the word of God and not the subjective feelings of human emotion. There's a reason why Christian radio has new songs every three years, because the other ones wear out real quick. Because a lot of them aren't based on, on this, this solid objective truth from God's word. That's why Mary's song has endured. It's stood the test of time. It's based on the objective truth of the word of God. Learn to pray the word, and let's be a church that also sings the word. And then last challenge for us as we go today is to live the word. If we're truly confident in what God's word says, if we say we are, if we're confident in the word of God, if we have trusted in who he is, if we have trusted in his promises, it will lead to action. Mary wasted no time. 
she immediately ran to the house of Zechariah and Elizabeth. I challenge you to consider this morning, how is the Lord calling you to live his word? And sometimes we, we make this discovery of God's will, like, man, we're, we're just hunting down the Holy Grail. Like it's some mysterious quest. But we're seeking some sort of treasure at the end of a rainbow. Let me lay out something very simple for you this morning. God's will is to do the next obedient thing that he places in your path. That's it. And this is what tends to happen. Is you walk through one door, and then you walk through another door, and then you walk through another door. Sometimes you find yourself in some rooms that you don't quite understand, but then one day you wake up, and because you've been faithfully, step by step, day by day, following God's will, you'll wake up and realize, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. It is always God's will for you to take the next step of obedience. And so listen, maybe for you this morning, it's going to be something simple. Just setting apart that time to make sure you you are immersing yourself in the word of God, to make sure you are praying to, to have that opportunity to sing to have that opportunity to meditate and reflect and to memorize. Man, you, you might have to, to do some destruction to your schedule. Just to make sure you've got that time so you can be building your life upon the promises of God's word. But man, may, maybe what God's calling you to do is more in line with what Zechariah and Elizabeth did. Who is the Lord calling you to care for? Who's in a place of need that the Lord might be pressing you to say, I want to open my home to this person. I want to shepherd them. I want to disciple them. I want to show them great hospitality in the name of Jesus Christ. What is the next step of obedience the Lord is placing in front of you? I challenge you to take that step today. Can you just bow your heads with me as we close our time together this morning? In just a moment, uh, we are going to come to the table for the Lord's Supper, which is our place of ultimate reminder that God makes good on his promises. Genesis 3, the moment man and woman fell into sin, the Lord in his goodness promised them there would come a Savior. And Advent is the reminder, he sent that Savior. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, fully God and fully man. Not either or, both and. The only person who could live the perfect life that you and I could never live. And as a result, the only person who was qualified to be the substitute to die the death that you and I deserve. God in the flesh visited his people. It's a wonder I hope that we never get over. So even though we come to the table on a weekly basis, it doesn't mean that we should do this thoughtlessly or carelessly. I think as followers of Jesus is, who, who are committed to these rhythms, we have to relentlessly fight to make sure we're not just going through the motions and checking a box. So just in light of the words of the Apostle Paul, let's examine ourselves this morning. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to search us, to illuminate our hearts. So will you just ask the Holy Spirit to reveal in your heart any patterns of sin? What are the patterns? What are the actions? What are the habits? What are the words? What are the behaviors? What are the feelings, the emotions? What is in you that is not of Christ? Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal those things.
And as the Holy Spirit reveals sin, we confess our sin. We tell God what he already knows, what he has already revealed. Let's come to him in confession of the things that he has illuminated in our hearts and minds today. That we have sinned and that we are sinners in need of repentance and redemption. Our assurance of pardon comes from 1 John 1, 9. Such a good promise. It's conditional. If we confess our sins, if we will do this, it's hard work, it's difficult work, but if we will do it, John tells us that our Lord is faithful and he's just. He will forgive us of all of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So let's ask the Lord for a heart of genuine repentance. This is more than just feeling sorry for sin. This is more than just the feeling of guilt over sin. What we want to do is actually agree with the Lord that we have sinned and then ask by the help and power of the Holy Spirit that we would turn from our sins. We would bring an end to our sin. We would cease our sin. That by the Spirit, we would put to death the deeds of our bodies and walk in the perfect righteousness that's been made available for us in Jesus Christ. Let's ask the Lord for a heart of true and genuine repentance. So, Father, as we come to this table this morning, we come in a spirit of praise and worship. So grateful. God's so grateful. That you traded kingdoms. took on flesh. He came to do what none of us could do ourselves. We thank you that the curse has been broken. We thank you that it's been reversed. We thank you that the, the chains and the power of the enemy have been broken. And we can walk in freedom in you. So Lord, as we come to this table this morning, as we continue to sing and to confess and to repent and to reflect, would you stir up within us, Father, joy. For those of us who have belonged to you, who, Lord, who have maybe grown cold and numb, would you reignite this morning our joy? Would it overflow in praise and the worship of your name? Father, for the person this morning who has never found joy in you, draw them to yourself today. Call their name. Regenerate their hearts and minds. Save them. Give them the courage to call on you even now and find the salvation that's found in your name. So Lord, be glorified as we continue in worship this morning. Let it all be a sweet fragrance and aroma to you. We ask it all in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Amen.